left, right. Yo, what is up my friends? I want to share with you, I am in the middle of dealing with a flooding basement. The basement is flooding, there's no stopping it. Not much I can do, I'm just trying to keep it dry. Uh, in the meantime, I'll be editing this episode. I think you will like it. Uh, pretty cool topic here. We're talking about education. We bring on Dr. Robin Elliott. She is a guru, very well credentialed, as I think I probably said 14 times throughout the episode. But uh, I think you'll enjoy her perspective. So listen on, let me know what you think, add your two cents. Is uh, the education system failing us? Has it already failed us? Is it going to get worse or is it going to get better? Let me know in the comments. This is Sip Talk. Grab a drink and enjoy. That's our music cue. What do you think of the music cue, James? Um, I only heard the first two or three seconds, and then something happened. Well, that's good. That's what we're going for. So welcome to Sip, Sip Dog, everybody. This is episode 130. We got a new music cue to cue us in. My name is Justin DeGiulio out of my basement in New Jersey. I'm joined by James, the Bosnia Boswell out of Charleston, South Carolina. James is a philosopher, an accountant, a professional referee, and a bartender. Stellar qualifications. Glad to have you as always, James. Um, and because you're a philosopher, an accountant, a referee, and a bartender, we're here to talk about education. <laughs> well, believe it or not, I worked as a substitute teacher for like three years. I've got more experience under my belt than a first year teacher would have after the end of their first year. Now, I don't have the educational background. I didn't take any education classes when I was in school. But one thing that I found when I was teaching and having talked with a number of teachers that had like teaching certifications is that a lot of what you learn in school about teaching doesn't apply to teaching. What do you mean? As a student? Or, no, like or, if, oh, you're, no, you if you're in college taking education college. classes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That a lot of the stuff that you learn in school to become a teacher has very little bearing on your ability to succeed as a teacher. I feel like that's the case with with most careers. I mean, maybe with accounting, you can go back and you're like, okay, I learned this. These are, you know, techniques and, and tricks. I'll say that with accounting, the the, the like when you're in school, you're learning a lot of theory in terms of how does accounting work. You can think about it kind of like computer programming, where if you know what the computer's doing on the back end then you know like when an error kicks out what happened on the back end accounting is very much the same way we're well, like my, my my thinking is is when you're dealing with account accounting you're dealing with constants when you're teaching you're dealing with variables and those variables being people students parents faculty staff staff dynamics shit like that 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 make it difficult to to apply different techniques and things that you've learned am i somewhat accurate on that yeah, there's a little bit of overlap because in accounting, it depends on where you are in the industry. You could be in an accounting role where you're just dealing with data entry and making numbers work and everything like that. And you're operating mostly in the world of theory and just applying the theory to whatever the data set that's in front of you is. But 
You can also have accounting roles that are very focused on interpersonal skills and ability to read people. Right, um, okay. But let's away from the away from the account. We we dove into this quick. Let I me, know, I know. But like, let me let me ask you. Let me ask you first. What what are you drinking? Uh, the the sip talk standard bush ice. Oh man, we gotta we gotta switch it up. I get I get bored too fast, and also I've haven't been stocking as much. I haven't New Jersey. You can't get beer at the grocery stores, so I got to go to a special beer store, which I barely go to the grocery store as it is. So it's 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 tough, man. I'm kind of well. I, I'm sticking with beer right now because uh, I did something incredibly stupid last week. Um, last Wednesday night, I was playing some video games and drinking very lightly. Like I had maybe like two, the equivalent of like two or three drinks over like an hour and a half. One of those drinks was straight gin. And like I was playing a video game, so I'd take a sip of gin and I'd be playing the game and I'd forget that I had the gin in my mouth and it stayed in my mouth for like three or four minutes for every like sip. Interesting and, technique. And that's very strange, but go ahead. Well, yeah. And what ended up happening was like whether it was just like the high strength of the alcohol or whatever was in the gin or whatever, but it burned the ever loving crap out of my mouth. And <laughs> for. Yeah, like Why are you gargling your mouth and holding this in your well? In your... I, I would take a sip and then I just like forget that I had it in there, and then like after like three or four minutes, like my entire mouth would be numb. I was like, Oh, I should swallow that and have another sip of gin. And then like the next day, I woke up and it was like some like I had taken like a drink of McDonald's hot coffee straight to the roof of my mouth, everything was just burned to ever loving crap. And for the last week, like there's been some things that I've been eating. Where like I've been in tears and pain because it hurts that bad to eat, and I'm just like I have to get through this because I need some nutrition. But holy <laughs> hell, does this hurt? You and I have completely. There's a, probably a reason why I have like 60 pounds on you or so, but you have a different <laughs> relationship with food. I would never forget in the middle of con consuming food that I was doing so, exactly that, consuming food. I, I the only way I for, the actually the, and this is a technique I've used for a long time. Is that when there's junk food in the house, you just eat it all in entirety immediately. And that way you don't have to worry about the temptation. It's just gone. So if you so if you just get it all out of the way, you don't have to deal with it. You could buy a bag of chips, and I guarantee, I guarantee this has probably happened to you on multiple occasions where you buy a bag of chips or, or some cookies or something, and you you turn up to them two months later and they're stale. Yeah. Yeah, from the moment I buy anything that's junk yeah, food. Yeah, it I, still I, happens to this day. I want I put it in the cabinet. I will wake up in the middle of the night because it's calling me from the kitchen. I go, what, what is that noise? Yeah. What is that? Oh, it's it's uh, Chips Ahoy? Oh, speaking oh, of calling you, Ahoy, we should, uh, ladies. Speaking of calling you, we need to say, we need to greet uh, Blondes Have More Fun and Maria. Glad that you guys are joining us tonight. We are talking about the what I call the current and impending crisis in education. And this is a topic that you have selected, something you want to talk about. Why, why this topic? What put this on the map for you? Because you're well, no longer, you substitute taught a decade ago. Yeah. So that's, that's long gone. Well, first of all, I, to, I want to throw this out to the viewers. Either your experiences with education when you were coming up, if you've got kids or like you know anybody that has kids right now and what they're going through, especially as it relates to COVID in the last 18 months or so. But I want people to weigh in on what they think 
is good and bad about the American educational system, what they think needs to be fixed, so, some, some of the differences that they've seen since they were in school versus today. But I think what got me thinking, uh, got me on this topic was there's all these videos that you can find of like school board meetings <laughs> where people are losing their minds. Because their kids are being asked to wear masks or the opposite. Yes. Yeah. <sighs> well, there's there's a lot there. There's a lot to unpack in, in what you just said. And I want to I want to start because I made a mental note when I was like back to your substitute teaching days. For those of you who don't know James, James brought substitute teaching as close to actual teaching as possible and probably closer to teaching than some actual teachers hold substitute <laughs> teaching. You weren't the guy that just like played the movie for the classroom. And I'm sure in certain instances you were. But yeah, there were certainly days that I did that. But I imagine you to be a more engaging type of teacher. Let me put it this way. There, the, the last year that I was a substitute teacher, I was in one school so often that I was actually in their yearbook as staff. Yeah, I wasn't that? employed by that school. I was employed by the district. I could have worked for any school in the district, all 20 or 30 of them, whatever. But I was in one school's yearbook as staff. I was there that much. Hmm. Well, that's a checkbox you got, uh, you know, that, that I, I don't otherwise have. That's pretty cool to, to uh, appear as staff. You know, there's a handful of our original guys from the high school we went to uh, who I think they teach there and they're, they're in academia. Well, at least in, in, in that. There are respect. people that we went to school with at Tamarack that are now teaching at Tamarack. Yeah, I think so. I think so. There's Do you happen real... to know who? I'll share off air. I'll share. Okay. Off air. Okay. But, uh, but I think, I think you, you'd find it interesting you, and you'd probably, if you had to pick four or five, you'd probably, you, you, three of them, you'd probably nail spot on and the other two, but off, off the air, we could do that. Yeah, that, that I can understand that. So but, your first, so, your first question, again, I want to kind of unpack before we get too far away from it. Your first question is, is what do people think of now what's going on with coronavirus and with students? And I'll, I'll share my opinion on that because now I, uh, you know, kind of a assumed a, a pretty large family, and there's some elementary school kids and some preschoolers and middle schoolers now in the family, and and I also, you know, I have a lot of connections through my office and through work where I'm dealing with people who have kids, and and I've lost a lot of agents because they just can't be in the office because they have kids, but kids working on their iPad or on a computer from home trying to do school is bullshit. It's, it's not very educational. The ones that are engaged and that are trying to learn don't have the resources or the hands-on help that they really need to. And the ones that aren't actively learning are slipping further and further behind because you, you know, you're basically putting the teaching job in the hands of the parents. So if the parents aren't there to, to be their one-on-one -on -one teacher, most of the kids are not learning. And uh, it's also, it, it's a setup to allow the kids to be really lazy. You don't have to get up. You don't have to get dressed. You don't, get a, you don't have to get in a shower. You don't have to catch a bus. You don't have to have any of the responsibilities that you kind of prep yourself for in school that help you later in life. You can wake up in time for your first class and jump on a Zoom fresh out of bed so well, if you angle the camera right you don't even need to leave bed 
I don't know. Do you have to have the camera on for the whole classroom? I feel like that would. Be I have no idea. I feel like this. But I'm just saying that, like, you just have the camera turned. <clears throat> so my thing is, right off the bat, the schools would say you have to do that. You, if if you're going to be present, you have to have the camera on. And then I think, like, the instant there's an issue, the schools just puss out and they're like, "Oh, we can't have we can't have cameras on." That was fully optional. Well, there's also the issue of access, where even though we're in 2021, not everyone has a decent computer. Not everybody has a decent way of accessing whatever remote learning platform there is. Yes, exactly. Um, I know somebody who actually took out office space in a building and built cubicles uh, for students. And I think he was being funded by the city or the state actually to do that. Well, and, and that's good. But, yeah, but so to your point about the remote learning and everything, I agree with everything that you're saying. I want to add on a couple more things. Um, which, like, I want to double down on the, we're now expecting parents to do the job of teachers. Well, yeah, and that's, but... that's unfair because one, the parents don't have the training, let alone the time, because you would have to expect that most parents, even if they can work remote, like they're expected to be paying attention to their job and now they have to like pay attention to their kid and their kid's educational success at the same time. Um, that's really hard to do. Um, another thing, and this is a really critical role that schools play, especially for like younger kids is developing social skills and just kind of societal coping. Dude, that's, that's, kind of one of the biggest things that was on my mind when you brought up how coronavirus has affected kids development in schools is just on a interpersonal level that you have to be exposed again i think we've talked about this before where like you have these full-fledged relationships with people via aim which is our generation and then you see them in person you have nothing to say um, let's real quick. Let's, um, blondes have more fun says that her grandson had a runny nose and they made him get a COVID test, which I can understand from the cool the school's perspective. They got to cover their butts and to Kejo, Um, so tonight's topic is very generally education. Um, and like the title that I have is like the current and impending crisis because there's a crisis right now. And there's also a bigger crisis looming. Uh, it's, it's going to get really bad. I'm, I was actually thinking there might be some states that basically just hold the entire year back. Well, I can tell you, but, like, like the NCAA, um, basically anybody, like, for athletics, anybody that was a senior last year basically gets another year of eligibility. Like, the NCAA was like, all of last year didn't count. Um, and so I could see, like, there's a whole, I don't know what schools are going to do with students because, like, in the mix of all of this for better or for worse is standardized testing. And so let's say you got seventh graders or whatever, and they take the state or federal standardized test for seventh graders that has seventh grade standards and everything like that. Like if they're a seventh grader now, they missed half of sixth grade. And at the end of seventh grade, they're going to have to take the seventh grade test. They they'll likely have missed some portion of seventh grade I'm going to just go out on a limb and say that they've effectively missed a full school year of proper instruction. But what, so, but what, but what happens just before you get too far away from the point you, you're talking about holding 
the giving the kids another year for for sports only? Well, for the NCAA, yeah, they basically like they gave a whole extra year of eligibility to any student athletes. So, but after the senior graduates. So yeah, let's say I'm a senior last year and I graduated from whatever school and I was on the soccer team because that's what sport I referee. Like if I wanted to, I could go do a fifth year at that school, maybe do like the first year of grad school or something and play a fifth year of eligibility for the soccer team. Because normally you can play four years, but... But, but you wouldn't be in school, but you would be playing for the school team. Well, you'd probably have to still be in school, but I think what you'd see a lot of the seniors do is like they'd be a fifth-year senior effectively, and they'd probably be taking graduate-level classes. Huh, that could work out. But, but then they're also 19 years old, crushing ass on the field. You mean 22 or 23? Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. You're, but I, all I was thinking about was the, the amount of growth that I put on uh, you know, from from high school into into early college years. Well, there's a big difference between 18 or 19 and 21 versus 21 and 22 versus 22 and 23. Like, I don't think that I don't really have much of an issue in terms of like the competitive advantages or disadvantages there. Um, but I want to get back to my point about the standardized testing and like because you're because I, I went there because you talked about like holding students back for a year. So I think if they start to do standardized testing on all these kids that are supposed to be at seventh grade level or whatever, and you're probably going to see like a major blip downwards across the board for all these students, if they don't alter the test and they say, here's the test from two years ago, we created new questions that are at the same difficulty level and everything else. I think you're going to see that basically with the, well, with with few exceptions, students really haven't made too many gains in the last year. Well, I I think they're not going to make any gains. If you, if you t- test tenth graders in 2018, and then you test the new batch of tenth graders in 2021, the new batch is going to probably be, test like ninth graders in 2018. Probably test. The thing is not. I don't even know the thing. The thing about school is just remember how much you even forget how to learn during the two or three months off that you have in summertime. Oh, yeah. Right. Like you don't you don't go from June or May from one grade and go into September, which is what we had in in New York. You graduate in June, you go to the next grade in September. You don't go into September at the same level you were in June, the, 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 the at the end of the other semester. You go backwards. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you've basically been working at home, I don't, I don't even think they're teaching and engaging with students as uh, really as much as they could be now versus just kind of giving them busy work until they can get them back in the classroom. But I also feel like teachers don't really want to be in the classroom right now. Well, teachers certainly don't because teachers are... Well, hang on, before you say... Before, I, I want to hear your point, but I want to get mine out without hearing what you have to say yet in my in the oh i thought that was a pause for me to weigh in no no it is it is it is but i want you to finish your sentence in just a second why would you become a teacher so you can have summers off and you can work until three o'clock in the afternoon do you think well the summer's off is true but the three o'clock in the afternoon is an illusion sure but this I, I looked up some stats and the, the average starting salary for for teachers in the U.S. 
is 44,000. And it takes varies a lot wildly of, by state, but it, it ranges from 31,000 to 55,000 for starting salary. But mm -hmm. depending on the amount of education that you need, even starting on the high end of that isn't great in 2020. To have 55,000, which is the top end, when you think about the amount of work that you have to go through to be a teacher, you have to have a master's level education and you've got to take all sorts of certification tests in pretty much any other industry you're probably looking so the 55 is the top end top i would end. say that in the in other industries you're probably looking at 65 to 75 starting yeah not not top end i i, like I think middle. If you have a master's degree you're probably not settling for something for less than 60 grand agree so but my and i'm not calling I don't want to come off as calling teachers lazy because I don't, I don't think most of them are, but I think that when you put a bunch of them in a room, these are academics and you want to err on the side of caution. And you also have groupthink that, that comes when you put a bunch of people in a room to make decisions. So you have these people that are going to err with, uh, you know, on caution and you have groupthink going on. So, you know, I think they're scaring themselves to not have to go back in the classroom and being able to work from home is a plus, you know, for almost everybody. Most people are saying they'd, they'd like to work from home. And a lot of people are saying, well, I don't want to work from home five days a week, but I would like to work from home two or three days a week. Yeah. Do we want to bring in Robin? Um, I think it would be cool to uh, to bring in Robin. Uh, we have Dr. Robin Elliott. Uh and she, I think, is going to join us by voice. I'll let her introduce herself if she jumps on here. She's very well credentialed. She teaches teachers teaching systems, I believe. Um, and she's got a lot, of, a lot of time in the classroom on both sides of the podium. So, but, uh, but I think something to address is the low salaries for the teachers. It makes it a job that a lot of people are not going to want to start. You know, if you're, if you're oh, completely, you're, you're absolutely right. Low salaries do not make it easy to recruit quality teachers. I mean, you're, you're not going to, uh, you're not going to college for, uh, you know, a different major and then graduating, deciding you want to be a teacher. You're going, you're going for higher education, which is a restricted, like you're not going to have a lot of opportunities outside of education initially with that degree. All right, so we got we got uh, Dr. Robin Elliott on the on the line here. I'm going to bring her in. Robin, can you hear us? I can. Hi, can you hear me? Okay. We can. What is up, Dr. Robin Elliott? Uh, <laughs> Hi. So, good evening. Hi, everyone. So, could you, uh, if you don't mind, just uh, introduce yourself and share with us some of your credentials and and title? Because I'm not. It's been it's been a minute. So. Uh, I, it has been a minute. You. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thanks for letting me speak. Um, so I am uh, Robin Elliott. I am the Associate Dean in the School of Education at Long Island University in Brooklyn. And so I have been a teacher for 27 years. Um, I was a substitute to James. Um, and, um, and I was also an administrator, principal, special ed coordinator, started charter school in East Harlem, and then higher ed for seven years. So my job now is I train teachers. Uh, especially all across the country. And when you all mentioned um, social and emotional learning and looking at the social skills, that was 
really uh, resonated with me. So that's a little bit of background of uh, who I am and what I do. So thank you all for having this topic. This is very important to discuss. Well, thank, time. thank you for well, uh, those of you guys who are commenting, uh, we're catching your comments. Hang tight. We'll, we'll catch you. Uh, we'll catch up in the comments in just a second. Robin, I'm glad you joined. You have a very credentialed background, a very impressive background, actually. Um, an interesting fact, Robin and I have known each other for 14 years or so, maybe give or uh, maybe 13, about 12, right. 12, or, yeah. 12 or 13 years. And we've known each yeah, other. We're dating ourselves. <laughs> and, uh, and we've only met once. Do you remember where we met Robin? <laughs> yep. On the corner. Of, just like New Yorkers do. Yep. Flat on, Iron uh, District. On, on uh, yeah. 23rd street or something, right? Yep. Yeah. We, we just walked. Madison. Yep. Yeah. We just walked by each other on the, on the street. So it was really, really wild. Um, <laughs> But again, it's, and we've talked on the phone, uh, you know, a handful of times. I think we, we catch up uh, that way. So it's cool to have you on. Oh. You, you're, you're hearing what we're talking yeah. about. You brought up the social and emotional, which I think is going to be one of the that's going to be the biggest dent in, in that's going to carry on. The educational stuff we can really Absolutely. catch up on. But we're talking about developmental years in kids and, you know, this go, I mean, think about how kids change from elementary to middle school and then think about yeah. how two and three year olds change between two and three years and, and five and six years when it comes to being introduced to groups of kids and formal education and things like that. But Robin, did you have a, so, something you wanted to take the lead on with that? Um, yeah, y'all mentioned such good points. And, uh, and I just thank you all again for um for thinking about educators and thinking about this, because this is such, this is, this is huge. This is really critical time. As we all know, we say, oh, this is unprecedented times in our society and we're in multiple pandemics and all of that. So this is really, it, it's an important topic. And what I would like to say is that um, having working with teachers and especially during the pandemic and supporting them, and yes, I trained them. And so I hired them at our university and I certify them so they can go out into the world and be credentialed. And you hit it, you know, right on the head when you said, um, one of you mentioned about um, getting out of college with student loan debt and then being credentialed, spending all this time, all those years in school, all the education, and then coming out into the field and making 65 or so thousand dollars a year. And that's what you, that's what I started making in New York City when I was a teacher here with a master's degree in 15 years, about 10 years ago. And so, a um, sizable and amount I, of student debt. And $80,000 in student loan debt. Yes. So more than I made a year, I had a student loan debt. Um, so, you know, 20, 28 years old or so with, with all of that. So, um, yeah, it, it is really, um, I just applaud teachers and I applaud parents, families, caregivers during this time, I mean, all of us um, that have survived, that are surviving the pandemic, um, and especially in New York City, there's so much trauma, and you're, you all hear that word a lot, but there's so much trauma that people, especially children, especially caregivers that have experienced in New York City um, during this time, on top of their historical trauma that they might have already experienced, those children that have grown up in poverty, that have grown up, um, from a household that English is a second language and parents are trying to survive and pay rent and put food on the table. So well, it, yeah, it is such a crucial time. Yeah. Well, go ahead. So a couple of things. One, 
bring me back on the trauma. Is that you're saying that's more enhanced with coronavirus happening right now? Uh, what happened last from last March until um, I would say, you know, for the past, you know, maybe three. Well, whenever we stopped quarantining, whenever that was, it's a blur for me. <laughs> it's a blur for me. So about a year that these children were not allowed to go to school. They didn't know what was going on. Um, their family, their parents, you know, if they had two fam- you know, two parents or caregivers in the household, families were trying to figure out remote learning. Kids were trying to get iPads and get technology. So, you know, teachers were out there in the, in the cold and in the rain, signing out tablets and iPads and Chromebooks to students. So every student in the New York City DOE Department of Education could have one. So, yeah, I would say there's so much trauma that these kids that were forced um, in their homes and in New York City, you know, generally speaking, we don't have a lot of space, but, um, but you know, New York, in small apartments. Yeah, well, yeah. that's that's true. Yeah, it, it was especially tough in the New York City area. Um, but New York City did it actually. And I'm, I'm pretty impressed Did a really good job at getting the technological resources out to. And this is a local issue Absolutely. for us. But New York, I mean, New mm-hmm. York City sucks at a lot of stuff, but the, these kids were getting brand new iPads um, and Apple was yep. just flying them over and just dropping them like bombs yep. in the city. It felt like it's a lot of iPads out there. Absolutely. Um, so yep. was, and they just was, gave them away. Yeah, that was that was pretty cool. I don't know if that came from just straight uh, state money or, or federal money. Um, yeah, but, combination, federal, state and city. Yeah, but. Uh, it, and, you know, when you're a kid, this is something a lot of adults don't really understand. But when you're a kid, stuff happens to you. So all this yeah. stuff's happening around you. And I think this is kind of what you were getting at. You know, correct me if I'm wrong, but you have all this stuff happening around you that's not in your control. And it's not in most cases probably being adequately explained to you. One, exactly what coronavirus is, exactly what's happening with the schools you just, you know, you basically just kind of get told you can't go to school one day and then yep. wherever your parents fall politically, they point fingers and blame mm-hmm. that end of discussion. And it's happened to you and you're completely out of out of touch with really the source and the cause of it. So I can imagine there being a, a bit exactly. of a bit of trauma there. But but my thinking really on the trauma side of things is these kids went from having to get up at five thirty, six o'clock in the morning and get on a bus and transport to school to now being able to sleep in until eight thirty, nine o'clock in the morning, walk out of bed in their pajamas. And for most of them, their, you know, their parents had to, had to stop working. And a lot of their parents were forced to stop working, but that, you know, there's no childcare. So these kids just kind of sure. got to, to mope around the house for, you know, whether it, be six months or 18 months or however you want to quantify the amount of time they spent in school. But I think it allowed, you know, my thing is it allowed kids to be a lot more lazy. Um, And I don't think it was, I would agree. My thinking really though, is that there's not so much trauma for the kids, whereas it it's just kind of affecting them in ways they don't know down the line. Well, that's just delayed trauma. Yeah, Yeah, it, it, it is trauma, but it's not like blunt force, like, you know, when you have, well, uh, you know, your house burns down and you're seven years old, like that's traumatic. The fact that all of a yeah. sudden you're sleeping at yeah. nine o'clock in the morning, going to school in your pajamas at your at your dining table is not exactly when I think of trauma, trauma. But what we're getting well, at is let this her is, explain why it is. All right. Well, 
Okay. You're up. <laughs> thanks. I, I would like to, yeah, thanks. I would like to say that because trauma has many forms. You know, there's abuse, there's neglect, there's all of that. So a lot of our children, especially in our houses of poverty, and especially of our marginalized children, um, students of color, um, statistically, um, they have historically with systemic racism um, and things of that nature that have just happened years and years and years. So there's historical trauma that many children and many adults, and we all have our backgrounds, right? We all have our, everyone has, you know, struggles and so, but so there's historical trauma, but then it depends on the household. It depends on the child. So a lot of our families, especially those of poverty, generally have over two children per household. So yeah, the, and I, I agree with you because I worked remotely for a while. So there was a time I didn't wear pants with buttons on them. You know, I wore yoga pants and didn't do yoga. But anyway, and so with that, um, these children, they may be three or four in the household. And now the 12-year-old is taking care of the six-year-old because the mom is trying to take care of the baby. There's no childcare. So there's more, the children may be able to sleep in and they may have to use their video or not, depending on where they are and the district they're in, but they may have other responsibilities. But what they hear outside, that fear that they don't know, they don't understand why Mount Sinai and Central Park is turned into has tents. They don't understand why their family lost their job all of a sudden. And they hear their mom, they may be six years old, they hear their mom talk about a moratorium and they don't know what that is. So they may not have had to face eviction before, but now families or caregivers, they lost their job suddenly abrupt, March 5th, most of them. And now these kids don't know if they're gonna eat. And then these families are trying to go to shelters and pantries and try to get food and there's none available. Well, uh, and, um, and, and, yeah, yeah. A couple of things is that on that note, if, if this eviction moratorium really lets up and we do have a lot of people evicted, then we will really have a homelessness crisis right now. The homelessness and I just Absolutely. want to disambiguate here. The current homelessness crisis we have isn't homelessness. You give these guys homes. It doesn't solve the problem. They're going to be out in the street drooling on the street. That's, yeah, that's a drug and mental health. Mm -hmm. uh, but the eviction moratorium is very interesting. I think a lot of the kids will be pretty aloof to, to what's going on in that respect, but I'm sure they won't be once they don't have a house. Like, well, I'm sure their parents are very much, you know, especially if their parents are taking time off or have had to quit or whatever it is, because you can't leave a seven year old home alone, especially in a New York oh. city apartment all day long. And that is yeah. terrifying. So if that's your only option yeah. is to, you have, you know, a, 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or $85,000 a job year, which is a decent amount of money at, at the higher end of that. You still can't afford a stay home childcare in-house, you know, that gets very expensive. So, uh, you know, I imagine yeah. a lot of these people had to figure something out with work or step down from their job. So that's, so, mm -hmm. so and that's going to happen to be women. Yeah. Right. And that's, and that is very true. Um, and I'm, I'm sure in this respect, uh, and I try not to bring the race and minority uh, conversation there, but I imagine it being kind of heavier sided on the on the minority end of end of things, especially in New York City. Um, but James, what yeah. what are some of the other things that you were talking about? Well, I had a whole bunch of questions and I, I'm going to try and keep this. I'm going to stay on topic here because we've been talking. One of the Mostly things that I'm. Well, yeah, but I want to say like the last 18 months, um, 
one thing that I've seen and I wanted to see uh, what Robin has to say about this is it seems to me like privilege and disadvantage situations are going to get more extreme on both sides when it comes to education. Because if you are wealthy enough to be able to afford childcare or a private tutor or, or go to a private yep. school where you, where the private school can kind of, to some degree, ignore state rules about in-person schooling or anything like that, then your kid's going to be at a much bigger advantage than if you are poor and don't have good internet access and aren't able to stay at home all day because you have to work and you're not able to supervise your kids during education. So I see one of the downstream effects of this as really amplifying the inequities that already exist in education. Where do you fall on this? That is a great point. I agree wholeheartedly. I agree. There's already a gap. There's already a divide and it's going to be more. And I think you nailed it. I think, and I think that is uh, just, yeah, beautifully put that unfortunately with everything that's going on, that divide um, is going to, is going to be affected. So there is going to be more of a gap definitely between the affluent, the middle class and the, and, um, and the class that struggles. So I, I would definitely say that is going to be something. And that is, um, there's significant funding that came from federal and also from state to help schools um, to help cope with this and to help provide other resources, especially with mental health, um, but also with um, some additional tutoring and after school. So there's been, I forgot the number, um, over $2 million gone into after school programs in New York City to help provide additional remediation and tutoring for after school kids. Um, That's so not I, I much, though, when you think uh, about hey, it. Hold, hold up, guys, because we're talking about what's happening and the fact that the rich and the poor and the privileged and the, you know, the, the struggling are being there's a wedge being driven even deeper into the divide here and that's the case in so many different aspects of every corner of the economy um, among other things we're talking about school here my question is how do you stop that from happening and what you just said is that there's been some state programs and some city programs that have put some money james was pretty quick to point out that it's not that much money but throwing money to put a Band-Aid on the problem is not solving the issue. So what's, what is really the cause of the issue? Why it's sliding so much further apart? You know, my, my, what comes to mind off the bat is that we, the way that we district schools has a, has a big effect on that. But there's got to be some other things as well. Can I refine that question a little bit? Because I, yeah, I appreciate uh, that. I don't, yeah. Because um, that that's very similar to my follow-up question, um, which is, so there was already inequalities in education before COVID happened. And we all agree that COVID did nothing but make it worse. And so the question that I would like to tack on to Justin's is, how do we address the inequalities that existed before COVID and then how do we address the specific problems that COVID introduced that made the problem worse? Those are great. Um, you guys are really, um, those are such good questions. I would say, um, I'll try to be not as convoluted uh, as possible. The biggest thing is, is 
family and caregiver training. We don't say parent anymore because a lot of our kids aren't parented. They have caregivers, either, you know, family, grandparents, et cetera. So these caregivers, these families, we really, educators, education, the system, workforce development, we really have to provide specific training and tools for these parents. We have to provide them financial literacy. We have to provide them tools. I think, Justin, you said at the very beginning, um, you know, these parents are home, you know, remote, doing remote learning with their children and they don't have the tools. They weren't trained for that. I think the biggest thing is education of the parents and that is before COVID and after COVID. Um, how do we do that? Yes, $2.2 million is not a lot of money in New York City, but we really have to start from high up. We have to start from but, these families and these But characters. why are we, well, I don't, when you say start from high up and then you say start from the families, that doesn't sound like the same thing. If I put my kids in a school, I don't want to then have to spend three hours with them every evening teaching and reviewing. If I put my kids in a school, well, I want that, the school to do a, a good enough job. And I don't want to, I don't want the onus coming back on me as a parent that I'm not doing my job when I'm paying taxes for someone else to do that job. And I'm a bit plain devil's advocate. Point. And I, I don't, I don't mean no, to be good. argumentative, but, but I, I'm, I'm not the only person. That's not exactly my opinion. I'm kind of, you know, flushing my thoughts yeah. out as we, as we speak, but what you said made me think this, and I'm sure I'm not the only person to be thinking that. Well, I'm going to go ahead and I'm just going to go, I'm going to agree with that. I'm going to say if I'm a parent and I'm paying property taxes and everything else, and my kids are going to school, I don't want to have to be doing that job. I'm paying somebody to do that job and sure. I'll hold my kid to be like doing their homework and everything else. And if, I, if there's something that I can assist with quickly, but I don't want to have to spend two or three hours a night providing additional teaching to my kid, which, which is a lot of, uh, most kids are spending. I mean, I never did any homework. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't, I'm, but my, my, I mean, at all. So, uh, but I, I imagine that most kids are doing, I, I remember in high school, kids were like, Oh, I was doing homework for three hours last night. Um, I imagine kids are spending two to three to four hours a night doing homework. And, you know, I, I don't think parents are going to, you know, the kids are going to come home and, and say, all right, all right, kid, put on your boots. You got them all the lawn and, and paint the barn today. Um, and, and not, you know, give them any backing when it comes to school and learning. But I don't imagine that they're going to be sitting with them for two or three hours, coaching them through how to do homework. No. And then if, if you know, I, I, I used to love math and science and all that stuff. But if I have a kid that asks me a basic math question, you know, I'm looking at nieces and nephews now and they're asking me seventh, sixth or seventh grade math questions. And I'm like, shit, I, that. Let me, I have no idea. I got to look this up, learn a little bit about it, and then I can kind of help and coach you through it. But parents aren't in tune with that stuff. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. They, they haven't been, and it's definitely worse now. Oh, I'm sorry, Justin. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, a, a comment we just oh. got from Dan Dujak said, I lost three employees in the last week because their kids are having to go remote and they need to be there. But sorry, Robin, to, to, to just talk about, no. Where, the, where the parents should be, what the expectations are for the parents, where we want it to be, where it is. And how can we keep that realistic? Yeah. That is, the, that is, the, that is great. Those are very valid points. I would say that the affluent are going to have the resources for the tutors, for the nannies. And with, with, when remote started, you know, a lot of them 
you know, no one, everyone was quarantined. So they didn't have, you know, those resources at first. But, you know, as far as expectations of the parents, it's the parents' responsibility, no matter, yes, we know everybody pays high taxes, but they want, and every parent, no matter what, they want the best for their child. So as far as how much time they spend, you know, doing homework or checking over it, I mean, that depends on the age. I think it's about 30 minutes per grade level of homework that's supposed to be assigned. A lot of times they're decreasing that because of everything else. But, you know, as far as spending an hour, I think the expectations that um, schools have of parents is to review the homework, to check it, to make sure, make sure the homework. You so know, are you, is, are is you saying are you saying six hours of homework at, at the 12th grade level? It could be if they are in a rigorous, if they're in a rigorous school. I mean, that's pretty excessive. I would say at least three to four for um, your middle school to high school. So there's a a curve. There's a curve to the metric. Then That still seems excessive to have to be doing three or four hours of work after school. Well, that's generally what what, what I'm seeing in some of the and some of the private and some of the private schools. I've done some tutoring and that there is a big But this was before that that part is pre-COVID. So that does seem very excessive, but we're talking about high school kids preparing for the regents and if they have extra tutoring and things like that. Um, and, and that's one thing that we want students to do now that they've been inside their own video games. The biggest thing that schools really want parents to do is to, to be on page with the teacher. If, if the teacher says, look here, the, whether they're remote or online or on site, hey, um, Robin's not listening today. I need you to talk to Robin. If they can be uh, it's on the account- same page, it's accountability. Yeah. It's accountability. I think is is it's am I right? Accountability. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I get yeah. that. So it's- so let's let's pivot a little bit, guys. Um, okay. My the, a question that I have, and I, I'm curious your opinion. And I'm going to ask this as offensively and and non-offensively as I can, because <laughs> I, I want to have kind of both sides of the topic out there. Is why do teachers not want to be in classroom and be teaching right now? And why do parents not just say, well, if the school tells you you got to wear a mask, put the fucking thing in your face and get out of my house for seven or eight hours a day. Right. Because if, if you got to, if you got to put a mask on to, to have the schools reopened, just put the fucking thing in your face and, and get, get out of my house. So it's two sided. I feel like the teachers right now are really apprehensive. They want to be, in a Pope mobile traveling around the school. If you guys don't know what a Pope mobile is, it's basically a glass, a bulletproof glass uh, enclosure that the Pope travels around in so he doesn't get shot. Um, and, uh, you know, teachers are very averse to being in classroom. And then parents are very averse to, I mean, there's signs sticking out of people's uh, lawns in my neighborhood saying like, you're killing kids by having them wear a mask or some shit like that. It's, it's wild these extreme opinions on, on both sides of this. So what's with that, Robin? I would uh, agree. Doctor Robin, say, <laughs> that's that's nice. Not necessarily, but that's nice. Um, I would say, in general, you know, this is generally speaking, that teachers are are human. And, and going back to when first started, I guess back in March or April, like I said, it's a blur. So this spring when they started coming back to school and then schools would have to shut down depending on that. The, the deal is, is that if these, these kids are, I mean, these teachers are living with elderly parents, um, they are scared to get sick. You know, they're scared to get sick. And generally speaking, a lot of teachers don't feel supported. Um, 
pre-COVID, post-COVID. And, and so teachers feel like that generally, that um, no one really cares about what the teacher feels or if the teacher's sick, um, the teacher's job. But the teachers, the school, teachers, the teachers are the mask. backbone. The teachers are the, bas- ba- the backbone here. So they the, are. The, they are. Know, the teachers, the teachers either have to go in with this, go into this with an all fear mentality or an all balls to the wall mentality, but you can't, you can't back you, 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 your foot's either all the way down on the gas or it's all the way on the brake. There's that's, no, there, because it's completely ha- unreasonable to expect that you're going to be able to get a disparate group of people to all come to a same but, approach and, and opinion on some and, issue. And what's what I said earlier, exactly. what I said earlier in the episode is that they're erring on the side of, of caution and that's not wanting to hold classes, which is what's holding up the economy and what's creating this whole issue. If teachers, well, you know, the teachers don't... go ahead, Robin. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. That was rude of me. So go no, ahead. I'm sorry. No, I, I, I just feel that that we're getting a lot of pushback to, from uh, about opening the schools from the teachers. And, but that's not the case, well, though. Ramen, maybe you can explain why teachers feel like they're not supported. Um, yeah, and once again, Justin, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I was no, getting passionate about that. Um, yeah, so in general, um, teachers, the teachers that are here, the teachers that are coming to the classroom September 13th, the teachers that are already back at schools now, charter schools in New York City, um, you all know down south in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, they've already started. So mm-hmm. uh, uh, these teachers that are coming back into the classroom, they don't have a choice. So they don't make the decision of when school starts or when school stops. I mean, in New York City, that's de Blasio, that's the new chancellor. They decided the school date and this is what's going to happen. So the teachers come to school. Um, but I think safety was the biggest. And also, like you all mentioned earlier, there are so many needs that these children are coming in now that they didn't have before. It was really bad before. I mean, teachers are nurses, lawyers, referees, um, doctors, social workers, mental health. Well, I get, I get why, I get why the yes. teachers would be scared, but ultimately, but I want to know why they don't feel supported. But all the parents want their kids in the classroom. It's whether they want their kids in the classroom with a mask or without a mask. And I would say that maybe not, well, not all. all, not all, but yeah, I would say the, the vast majority of them want their kids out of the house. They want the kids in classroom. Mm-hmm. Because having the kids at home creates a lot more issues than having the kids in the classroom. Yeah. And then my, my um, teachers that I work with, I know the teachers that, um, that, that I've been training and them is my personal friends. They have been waiting and so excited to go into the classroom and teach because they miss kids. Because that's what they signed up for. They want to be with the kids because we all know and research is showing it that you cannot get that same interaction virtually as you can on site. Um, but also when you're a kindergarten teacher, you can't make a five-year-old kid on the, on the playground or on the rooftop, keep their mask on. So, so I think the safety issue, what I would say would be the biggest thing, but I would say in general, the DOE teachers got a thousand dollar raise this year for, for, for the past year and a half of dealing with COVID and, you know, teachers have everybody's had to pivot. You know, we've heard the word pivot and pivot. So these teachers have had to figure out what is remote learning? What is this? What is a Zoom? My video's on, my video's off. Um, the kids stay on a Zoom. And then while they're teaching, then there's a drug deal going on, you know, in the apartment while the teacher's trying to teach some kids. So um, the online thing, a lot of my t- colleagues and them, you know, they, they don't want to be online because it's, you know, it's 
it's very difficult. It's, it's very difficult to keep a child, especially a four-year-old with special needs, keeping them on the computer. We all know what that does for their body. Yeah, well, my, and their, my cousin, my their cousin, thing. my cousin works uh, in the, the schools in New York for special needs upstate. And, you know, some oh. of the pictures that she's painted. God bless them. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's got to be one of the most difficult, you know, and she does it out of passion, I believe. Uh, but that's got to be one of the most difficult roles to 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 be in is just dealing with the special needs kids. And it's not I mean, there's no special needs is oftentimes a physical role. You can't it, you know, can't really be done remotely. Mm-hmm. So, the, yeah. And, and again, that's why I feel like the teachers just need to decide, like, we're going to, you know, we're in this as a group. It's uh, it's a republic here. You know, somebody's got to be in charge and and uh, they got to make that decision. But we either have to. I, I just don't like all this back and forth. And I think that's what's causing a lot. Of I the, agree. A lot of the issues for us. And unfortunately, it's- you know, that's kind of where you know, Trump excelled, where he was just like, you know, this is. I mean, he pissed off a lot more people than he needed to with his decisions and literally <laughs> everything that he did. But if he just made decisions, uh, you know, with less grandeur, uh, you know, that one, the ability to make decisions and just say, fuck it, this is what we're doing was definitely one of the, the upsides of, of him as a, as a leader, whether it's for a business or for the country. But the fact that, you know, he just said this is, it is what it is. Um, was a positive characteristic, but we have, a, we have very few people in this, in the world right now, especially in the U S that are able to do that and piss people off by making decisions. People are afraid of pissing people off by making decisions. I'm not really sure that that's as positive a trait as you're attributing it to be. Well, no, Trump was a clown and he pissed a lot of people off because he ran his mouth and he said dumb shit, but, but he also, he was able to make decisions. Making decisions is different than making good decisions. Sure, but sometimes any decision is and you know is 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 moving forward. And what we have right now is either you're going to close the schools down or you're going to open them up. But you can't do this thing where you know where you have the the school open and then one kid tests positive and you shut the whole school down for two weeks. It doesn't make doesn't make sense. And and there's certain districts very- in certain states that are doing shit like that, and it doesn't. You can't open for three days, get everybody geared into their lives and then shut down because because somebody has a positive coronavirus test doesn't doesn't make sense. Well, let's see what Robin has to say about this. I I would um, I would say that I I agree with you. It is very difficult and it's such a good question you all posed because, you know, you say generally, why do teachers not want to go back to school really with that? All the decisions being made from top, which is how it is, you, you do that and you you go back to the class like you mentioned, Justin, you, you get in there, you're teaching these kids and then well, whatever okay. percentages. Sorry, I want, I want to stop you because I'm not saying all teachers don't yeah. want to go to school. Some te- obviously, and like you no, said, generally, some teachers yeah. are very yeah. excited um, to go to school, but teachers are educators and they're educated yeah. and, they're, and most of them are logical people. So what happens is you have a group of 10 teachers and and six of them want to go back to school. Two of them don't really care. And two of them live with old elderly relatives and they're deathly opposed Mm -hmm. to, you know, to going back to school. So this group of people is going to say, well, you know, fuck the two people that that live with older people and they can quit or they can put their loved ones at risk. Or does the group say, well, you know what, maybe we got it. This is 
we should probably stay home for another two weeks or a month or six. So that's what, yeah, that's what I, I feel like is happening in a lot of districts. Mm-hmm. I will say that, um, yes, you, you are mostly correct. And no, I definitely know what you mean. Like generally speaking, some teachers don't. Um, what they're doing now is with, they have um, their pods or families. So here in the New York City Department of Ed, um, and it just depends on each, each particular um, re- region and, and who's the administrator in the school, but they have pods. So what these kids, um, let's say you're, let's look at kindergarten, for example, have a very good friend, she's kindergarten. She's amazing. So she has a class of 25 kindergartners with her assistant. And, and these kids are in pods of five kids. So all throughout the day, all week, they are with these five kids, lunch, recess, art, and they're not around their social distance from the rest of the class. So if one of these kids gets sick, then they're saying that, you know, it's less likely than the rest of the kids in that pod, which mm-hmm. would be five or so plus the teacher, as opposed to the rest of the class. So, yeah, I mean, I get it. It is, it is very, very difficult. And it, there's so much back and forth. And I think everybody's just the legislatures. No one has ever had to experience this and are, you know, in, in this particular lifetime. So no one knew what to do. So I think everybody's just trying to do the best they could. Yes, some crazy decisions have been made. Um, but then like if a teacher says, hey, I don't want to do that, I don't want to work, well, then they, if they can retire, they can retire or they quit. Um, if they don't have a religious or a medical waiver, um, they will not, then they won't work. So they have yeah. to make that choice. So it's, it's, I get it's, it. We're it not, is very, what you just said, hard. What you just said is we're not set up right now, basically, to be, this happened really fast and we're not really set up for, for situations like that. Guys, we got just over three minutes left. Rob and I hate to cut you off because we, no, you're sorry, saying it's pure you. gold and, it, and it's a, it's a perspective that unfortunately, you know, we don't really have, and you have a lot more years in this and a lot more experience. So I think what we need to right. do is plan to bring you on again, but, but I got to pause on the, the teaching subject. Cause I got, I got a message uh, we're going to do a dating podcast with drinks first drinks. First podcast is going to be on uh, sorry to pivot so hard guys, but we got to cause we're running out of time. Drinks first podcast is going to be on next week. It looks like next Tuesday and we're going to have Ariana from drinks first. And uh, we're going to start to throw out some dating questions in, uh, in the Instagram stories and some questionnaires, but Milad asked a question and his question was, should he, start dating in his twenties or should he just put his head down and work his ass off for his twenties? Um, real quick guys, we get, we get less than uh, two and a half minutes left. What are your thoughts? Uh, James, Robin, James, you're first. Should Malad work during his twenties and, and not date or should he date and uh, see what happens with work? He needs to be dating in his 20s because if he just works during his 20s and doesn't have any experience whatsoever then he's just going to be completely out of his depth when it gets to his 30s because he's going to have money in no sense robin what are your thoughts i echo that sentiment exactly that is well stated he's he's it's all about balance life is all about balance so you have to have some fun so before you know it you're 60 and then he's single with a bunch of cats in an apartment but yeah, I would say try to find a balance. I, uh, when I was 18 or 19, I quit my job. I was a delivery driver for a pizzeria. So obviously it was a, it was a career, you know, I was really bound for greatness in that career, but I quit that job 
to buy a boat and spend the summer on a lake with no money in my, in my bank account. But that was back when they used to mail you credit cards. Um, so I had a couple of credit cards that I, I had in the mail and I opened those up and, and used that to, to fund my summer until, uh, until I filled them both up without making any payments on them. Yeah. So Malad, we're not recommending that course of action. No, what we're saying is we're saying is you, what we're saying is you don't have, it's not, you don't have to be as dumb as I was like, that's not in reality. Nobody just only has fun and only goes on dates and doesn't work. That's not, a but thing. also don't be as dumb as you're thinking about being by only working. Yeah. That that's, equally as dumb like what you get out of work at five if you want to do some like you know some part-time stuff where you got like an internet company you're selling some apparel or something like that you know between six and nine or you work after hours you know into midnight into one o'clock in the morning whatever it is you start selling some stuff cool do that man but but that doesn't mean a, a day or two a week you can you can go on a date and get laid do it on the weekends yeah i mean there's a weekend of- warrior man there you go. And take yeah. it from an old woman. Yeah, have fun. Enjoy New York City. If you're in New York City, enjoy it and make make your money. Get your experience. Prompt your, prop yourself up in a career that you want. But take advantage of 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 this great city and and other people. We're out of time. We're out of time. Dan is playing us off. Bye. Adios. Bye, guys. <laughs> Thanks, Robin. Adios. Bye. See you. See you. All right, that's the end of the episode. I will continue to bail out buckets of water in my basement. I will get to editing this episode, and you'll be listening to it. You will have already listened to it by the time you hear my voice right now. Um, I'll see you next time. Have a drink, because I'll be drinking after I dry this place out. I like PBR. I just got priced out of it.